Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, this is a really, really important interview for those of you worried about the stock market. Andrew Sleman is with Morgan Stanley, a senior portfolio uh, manager, among other duties, um, is well. Andrew, I want to talk about the nuance here. As we went to air, you were talking about not raging, but being a raving bull. You're not a raving bull, but you're in the market. How can you do that? Well, I mean, all all I'm trying to say is, look, I mean, let's keep it simple here. Stocks are the present value of future expectations. And what I see is companies are blowing out expectations. So I don't see how you can't take a step back and say, wow, you know, uh, something's going on. Companies are saying things are better than what Wall Street expects. And I think you have to respect that. Uh, in what the market's right. saying. The charm of your research note is you've got the usual blather and then you've got a killer paragraph of data where you'll go, oh, he and Morgan Stanley did your homework. You have the street with an 11% miscalculation on earnings. They just they missed it by 11%. Put that in scope and scale. What does it mean forward? Well, you know, I, that's why I've a hard time saw someone telling me well, you know, we started the year with $167 of earnings. That was what Wall Street expected. We're now at 185. I, I guess I'm just not smart enough to for to listen to someone who says that's it. It's not going up. I mean, I have a hard time believing that. And the market is only up by the magnitude of that earnings whiff. So I don't think you can say the market's gotten frothier than it was earlier in the year. No, the market's just repriced based on that miss. And if we continue to move higher, which I think it's always very dangerous to draw the kind of the the line in the sand and say, this is it, uh, then I think the market will continue to push higher. The other thing that I think is really important here is the Dow Jones Industrial Transport, the old index that tells you how the market, it's kind of 13 weeks in a row. That's you got to respect that something is going on here that I think Wall Street is not optimistic enough about uh, the the what companies are saying. Andrew, that's healthy, though, isn't it? It's healthy. We're not getting carried away with this at the moment. We're looking at prices almost exclusively at the moment. We're focused on execution risk. Very little attention paid to what's actually happening with margins. Andrew, can you walk us through what's actually happening with margins? Well, I mean, there's certainly a risk of margins uh, uh, peaking or being constrained. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, but, you know, could that be overcome by revenues being stronger than expected? That remains to be seen. But clearly, I think there is a rotation into companies that will not be as margin squeeze, whether that's in some of the commodities areas, energy, financials. I think those are the areas that are most uh, intriguing in the market because there's probably the least margin squeeze out there. I saw BTIG and Julian Emanuel yesterday putting out a note, Andrew. They upgraded Staples, price action, <coughs> pricing power rather, being the focus there. Did a Staples, are they on your radar right now, Andrew? No. Why Don't not? like them because I think they will have margin squeeze, number one. Number two is if, I am, uh, if I'm right about the fact that the economy is stronger than what is priced in the stocks, I don't want defensive stocks. 
I want cyclical stocks. I want value stocks. And I think as much as I hear people talk about owning uh, uh, cyclical stocks, the data suggests they really don't. They really don't. So I think gearing up, you own conceptual staples if the market's going to fall. Gearing up for a fall, well, that's not what the second quarter, uh, first quarter earnings report just told you. Andrew, is there any logic behind the caution that we're seeing with stock investors and, frankly, with the analysts on Wall Street? Well, it sounds smarter. <laughs> it always does. It all sounds smarter. Uh, I, uh, but I, I, I think you have to be a little humble here and say, gosh, the market's telling you something uh, that leads you to be a little bit more optimistic than what you're hearing. Look, I, there's no question in my mind we're going to have a pull back at some point. But I don't think it's in the near future, not with what's coming out of these uh, these earnings reports. They're just too powerful. So if a company, you know, if, if uh, a Wall Street is forced to raise earnings, but the stock doesn't respond, don't get don't get pulled out of those stocks. Stocks don't go down for long, you know, when, uh, you know, the, the future is better than what is presently priced in this stock. Andrew, the reason why I ask this is because there is then an incoherence with respect to the bond market and what we're seeing in equities. Because if you're right, and the balance is toward more gains and a further growth uh, trajectory here, then the bond market is not making sense at a time when the U.S. is increasing its deficit and you've got big nationals in the United States raising their dividends and offering way more income to investors just purely on an income basis even, let alone the potential returns. Can you square these realities? Exactly. That's maybe why the market's going up. Um, look, I think rates are going to go up because I think uh, basically the economy is stronger than we realize. Uh, but I don't think it's going to go up at a very rapid rate because there's this, you know, the, the differential to the rest of the world is great enough. It creates a bid for our for our bond prices. But I'm an, I'm an equity guy, and I think it's saying to you uh, that remain in the cyclical. I think there's a long way to go. I think people are, are, you know, energy stocks, they were the best performing sector in the first quarter. They get no love because there's this expectation that the economy is peaking. I We've think seen that's, the best of I it. How many times have we heard yeah, that in the last couple the of days? Of, oh heard that again God. yesterday, Tom, the ISM, the PMI, we've seen the best of it. Peak growth, Tom, again and again on repeat. I love the but, fear. But do me a favor, Jonathan. When someone says to you, we've seen the best of it, say, were your estimates 11 percent too low at the beginning of the year? I mean, that's what you have to oh, ask. Come on, challenge Andrew. them. The, the <laughs> fact is, Andrew, you and I are watching the internet gloom. The peak is Friday evening. Everybody's got a martini in their hand, writing on the gloom and the doom. And the answer is, it's a long ticket. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, you can't go up, John Farrow, to those kind of levels you're hearing from Costin and Lori Calvacina and the rest, John Golub. You can't get there unless you've got the gloom. Well, I think the problem that I have with the peak growth concept, well, and Andrew, I'd love your opinion on this as well, is that the peak rate of growth was always going to become at the beginning of this particular cycle because of the nature of the slowdown. It was a mandated recession, reopened, spring, coiled, bang, you jump higher. For me, I'm not sure that's any indication of where the cycle goes, though, Andrew. What's your take on it? I think the cycle is going to last longer. This concept of peak I'm just, I, I have a hard time with this peak concept given the magnitude of the earnings revisions and the blowout so far. So I'm just not sure we're there yet. And so calling the end or calling the peak, I think it's premature. So let's talk about the potential returns. Let's go to the Jonathan Golub call for 22% returns in 2021. Can we get 23%, 25%? What are you looking for here? 
Well, I think that next year's earnings are already up to about $208 from the low 190s at the beginning of the year. So that was the estimate beginning, low, you know, around 190, and we're up to $208. Well, what happens if we get to $220 to begin next year? I mean, I think that 4300 4400 is very doable as a forward P. The point of this is, I think the, what's the most important here is we all look at PEs and we base them off forward estimates. And the flaw of forward PEs is what happens if that E is very wrong? And that's what we've seen this year. The forward PE has been way too pessimistic. So yeah. I think that's very possible we'll see mid 4,000s by year end because I'm just looking at the trajectory of the E. Andrew, it's good to catch up. As always, Andrew Slim in there That's of Morgan Stanley with a little bit of media training for me as well, I think, Tom. I think he's trying to tell me what to ask next time someone talks about peak growth. Right now, we've got the perfect guest to get us started. In this hour, Seema Shah joins from Principal Global Investments. And Seema, within your note, what I really loved was the linkage, the study of the linkage, rather, between equity and debt. The idea of what the stock market's going to do versus what fixed income's going to do. Describe that linkage right now. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that earlier today. Look, the equity market is looking so strong at the moment. You know, of course, there are concerns uh, that we're not going to get the continued economic surprises, which may keep pushing the market as, as much as we've seen recently. But it's looking really strong out there. Whereas the bond market, you've got bond yields around the 160 level. It just doesn't seem to be lining up. To me, the main factor which is holding bond yields down is still there's an expectation that the Fed is going to stay on hold. But at some point, I think we're all in, in agreement here that bond yields are on their way up this year. It's just the speed at which they're going to move. And that's what's going to be... Um, the major impact for markets. Seema, I think one thing that people are struggling with at the moment in the bond market, if this data doesn't get it done, if this data does not translate into higher yields, what data will? Yeah, I, to me, it's the inflation data. We, you know, we need to keep watching that. And the thing is, is that we're all expecting inflation to move up over the next couple of months. So there's no surprise there. It's really when you start getting into autumn, winter, and if you're still seeing inflation moving up at that pace, that's, I think, when the bond market is really going to freak out. Um, and that's, I think, when the equity market becomes increasingly vulnerable. And the thing is that, look, you know, the market is very, very divided on what the path for inflation is. But I think that even the ones, and I'm going to put ourselves in there included, we do think it's transitory. But we also have to admit that there is a very fair chance that inflation will turn out to be sticky. Um, and that's where all the risks are lying at the moment. There's a big debate among stock investors of when higher yields is good or when higher yields is bad. Up to a point, it's good. It indicates that people are upgrading their expectations for the economy. At a point that's too high, it reassesses perhaps some of the valuations currently baked into markets. What is that tipping point, Seema? I think <clears throat> rather than the tipping point, I think it's really that speed. Right, what is driving markets high? And you can look at it, but just even just looking at financial conditions, a financial condition is still really, really loose. In which case, the equity market is really fine. It's when you start to see a really turbulent and unsettling move in bond yields. That's when I think markets really start to struggle to digest this. So in terms of a level, it's probably higher than what most people are thinking. It's probably above the two, the 225 level. It's, but if you start to get to yields at about 2% within the next month, of course, that's going to freak out markets. So it's all the drivers. It's the speed, which is really the key point here. 
Well, the speed is going to go to the first and second derivative. I was talking, Shasima, to our uh, Kaylee Lines about this. I mean, just the rates of change out there. Do you expect stability or do we need to be really, really aware of potential convexity, not only in, in bonds, but the equivalent convexity in equities? Look, I think there are risks out there, look, we, and that is is obviously a risk. But I think a lot of it is going to be down now, at least for the next few months, to the Fed's communication. Where are they um, telling us that they feel uh, rates are, where they feel about inflation? They have the ability to keep the market calm. But if that starts to unwind, then, of course, you know, that, that speed, that second derivative, becomes a, a very, very key risk. Our, our, our view at the moment, though, is that markets are really on a steady upward path. There may be points of pullbacks, but it's really an upward movement um, from here. Seema, do you have a regional bias right now outside of the United States? Where is it? It's an interesting one, actually, because, look, we have really favoured the US um, over the last few months. We have pulled back some of our um, kind of preference for emerging markets because of all the reasons with COVID, uh, rising inflation concerns around China. Now, Europe is increasingly becoming more attractive, but I have to say that would be a very tactical trade because further out beyond the, the kind of the, the joy of reopenings, we still think that Europe is very, very much under pressure from a long-term growth prospect um, until they can get their fiscal policy really moving at the same pace as what we're seeing in the US, which really doesn't look likely. Uh, Europe will continue to be the, the underperformer. So, you know, a few months of maybe, maybe good performance from Europe, but then it goes back again. So actually, overall, we still prefer the U.S. Seema, I want to just wrap up with uh, dovetailing the conversation that we had earlier this morning with Andrew Slimmon into uh, this dialogue. A question of this 11 percent miss when it comes to Wall Street estimates for earnings so far in the S&P 500. You're getting a little bit more cautious in some of the large cap stocks or reducing certain allocations, I believe, if I have this right. What do you say to people who say earnings have been blowing it out of the water? Does that make you reassess? Why do you dismiss it? No, look, look, there have been a continued upward movement in earnings expectations. Actually, we would anticipate that as the year progresses. Uh, you have to be very careful, though, at this point. And this is, again, active management really will do well at this point because you need to look under the surface, start to start thinking about which sectors are going to outperform and which ones are going to do badly. Uh, you know, you, you refer to our reduced allocation to large cap tech. We still like mega cap tech. But we just don't think that you're going to see the same kind of returns that we saw last year. But if you're looking at earnings uh, potential, if you're looking at cash flow, those are the companies which are really going to provide stability, not just over the next few months, but actually a longer term. So there is still a place for secular trades within your portfolios, as well as that allocation to cyclicals. Seema, we've got to leave it there. Seema Shah, Principal Global Investors, Thanks. Chief Strategist. Ethan Harris with us, writing her at Bank of America Securities, their global economist. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us. I want to go to Michelle Myers' spectacular two charts on the makeup of our pain, our jobs pain out of this pandemic. And what she does is she looks at the area underneath the former labor participation rate, and it is an ugly integrand, as the math people uh, call it, that space that we've got to get back to to get back to normal. When do we do that? Um, I don't think we quite recover that whole gap. I think that in the later this year, we'll recover a lot of it. Um, I mean, what's causing the gap, of course, is the COVID crisis is making people reluctant to work. Uh, people need to take care of their kids at home. Unemployment benefits are very generous. 
And there's been very high retirements going on as people kind of rethink their life in a way in this crisis. So uh, a lot of that will come back in the fall and into next year, but there'll be a chunk of lost uh, workers that never come back. She has a mismatch, 700,000 mismatch, taking this from Bureau of Labor Statistics and CPS data. Okay, fine. Do we get back to a fully employed America? Is that a feasible reach for anything but politicians who are supposed to say that? Yeah, I mean, we'll get back to full employment, but full employment may not be as low as it was before because you've got these structural problems of job mismatch. I mean, we've seen it in other cycles where you'll have a big shock to the economy. Uh, Some sectors grow, others don't. Uh, Workers get kind of displaced along the way and you end up with a a higher unemployment rate on a chronic basis. So uh, I think we'll get back to very low unemployment. We probably can get below 4%. Uh, but there's going to be a little bit of that structural unemployment that that hangs over uh, well into the recovery. Just want to touch on this data, Ethan. Just give me a second. The trade deficit, the trade balance coming in at $74.4 billion negative in line with the survey. Mike McKee straight away pointing out that is the widest monthly gap in history of data going all the way back. Tom Keane to 1992. That's as wide as it's been for a long, long time. Negative 74.4 billion. I'm glad you bring it up, John. I miss that. I'm sorry, folks. A little bit of a blur here. Dr. Harris, comment on that, on the trade deficit to GDP. Another record we didn't want to make. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it's obviously the case that the U.S. is coming out of this recession very fast compared to our trading partners. So, And the growth is initially is in goods demand, which, of course, is traded. Uh, not in services tend to be domestically uh, delivered. So you've had a massive sucking in of imports. Uh, you folks talked about this, you know, China in particular, a big beneficiary of this. Uh, and we're not, uh, our exports aren't growing quite as, as gangbusters. So you're going to have a record trade deficit and it's going to get bigger uh, going forward. It's, a, it's, the, it's because the U.S. is so exceptional in yeah. terms of the amount of stimulus it's doing. Well, Ethan, I think that's the story, isn't it? It's a reflection of this massive demand shock that we're experiencing in this country right now that other countries, other nations, other exporters aren't going through. So we're no, getting I mean, all of their exports and we're getting none of, they're not getting none of us right now because their demands are not there. Europe, a case study for us all to look at. Yeah, I mean, if you compare or contrast U.S. and Europe, I mean, the amount of fiscal stimulus in the U.S. is three times bigger than what they're doing in Europe. Um, Europe has a pretty small uh, next uh, generation of stimulus coming that's spread out over many years. The U.S. has poured massive money in and continues to do it. I think a lot of the stuff that's on the table now will pass. Uh, so it's going to, you know, when you way outgrow your trading partners, um, you're going to your own economy is going to look very good, but you're going to pull them along with you. And that's what the U.S. is doing. It's you're, the global engine of growth. You're going to pull them along with you or they're going to perhaps weigh you down a little bit as you try yeah. to get into a new economic cycle. There has been a huge question about where we are in this economic cycle. There's an idea of burn hotter and shorter. There's an idea perhaps that we never left the old cycle. Where do you fall in uh, in this issue? Well, I think in the, in, we're going to recover extremely fast. This is going to be, we think, the fastest recovery in history. So we think by uh, you know early next year, we're going to be back where we, we started from. So in a sense, it's almost like this was this kind of bad nightmare 
two-year period, and now we're out of it. Um, but it, there's a danger in this, in that um, right now, high growth is fantastic. Let's get back to normal as fast as possible. But at some point, we need to slow down. Uh, we're we're going to go through the stop signs next year, I, th I think. And at some point, the Fed needs to change gears. They need to say, okay, uh, yeah, we are going to hike. Uh, and we're, we're going to hike a little bit more than we're telling you, <laughs> and uh, we need to slow things down. So it's it is it's a remarkably fast recovery. We're moving. We're jumping from deep recession to full recovery in record time. Ethan, do you ascribe to the Robert Kaplan idea here that markets themselves, given how exuberant they have gotten, could pose a material risk to the economy in a year or two years if the Fed does have to hike more than people are currently pricing in and there is a quick end to this recovery? I think there's a risk of that. I think it's a very good point. I mean, um, right now the markets are being fed an incredible a mix of positive news. You've got Fed not hiking anytime soon. You've got big fiscal stimulus, got great growth numbers, um, the great, very good news on vaccines and the COVID crisis. So you're going to have a red hot uh, risk asset market for whether it's home prices or uh, equity valuations. Uh, but that's an environment where you tend to overshoot. And, you know, we could be in an environment where the Fed has to take away the punch pole. So the risk to the economy in 2023 and 24 is pretty high, I think, of, a, of an accident here. Uh, Ethan, with the, the ties that Bank of America has coast to coast, what do you see for business investment? Are there, is it actually going to uh, affect CapEx or is it one big share buyback? No, I think the CapEx is going to be strong. Um, if you look at our surveys of... Uh, of uh, fund managers, they're telling companies, invest in CapEx, right? That's a sign of a lot of optimism about the outlook. Um, if you look at models of capital spending that economists uh, estimate, the main driver of CapEx is growth and growth expectations. If a company thinks their market's going to grow, they, they do CapEx, and it's not really that important, the funding aspect. The funding is kind of something you have to take care of in order to create the CapEx. But the real story is about uh, a rip-roaring recovery, uh, encouraging a lot of investment. So we're going to have a we're going to have a, a recovery that starts very much concentrated in the consumer as they come out of their cave, their COVID caves, and get out there, and and uh, engage. And then over time, capex is actually going to start outgrowing uh, consumption. That that's what we expect next year. Ethan, just quickly, the guide for Friday. What's the focus for you away from the headline number? You know, um, it's it's uh, it, 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 there isn't any big focus. It's just that this is a ripping labor market. Um, you know, to have another nine hundred thousand plus number, um, I think the story of the job market and the story for the Fed is the consistency of the strength. So, are we going to keep getting these big numbers? And at some point, then the Fed has to say, okay, now we need to think about tapering our bond purchases. So it's not so much about one report. It's about the cumulative evidence that this is not a temporary caffeine high. This is a real strong recovery going on. Ethan, great to catch up. Ethan Harris, Bank of America Securities Global Economist.
get lucky with our analysis and that we have the finance of Pfizer. And with us, Amash Adalja of Johns Hopkins. John Farrell, let me go to you uh, first. I see a single line item beautifully laid out, I should say, by Pfizer. They're not hiding anything here, where vaccines go from 1.6 billion, 1. 6 billion and explode up to 4.9 uh, billion. John Farrell, why don't you bring in Dr. Adalja of Johns Hopkins with Pfizer getting it done? Well, here's the headline from the New York Times, Tom, that you allude to in the last 24 hours. <laughs> the FDA to approve the Pfizer vaccine for ages 12 to 15 next week. A report coming from the New York Times. I'm pleased to say that Dr. Amos Adalja of Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security joins us right now. Doctor, let's just start with that headline. How important is that next step on rolling out this vaccine? Well, if we're going to get cases down from the tens of thousands that occur every day, we need to have more of the population vaccinated, more population level immunity. And as we get to children, the older ch child groups, 12 to 15, are uh, groups that are in extracurricular activities where you see them spreading it. So you will likely get a benefit uh, in terms of closer to herd immunity, more population level immunity, and decreased cases as we get 12 to 15 year olds. And it will help help some of those schools that have been holding out and not going to full in-person learning have less obstacles in their way to do it. So I think this is a good step forward. And I think we'll probably see even younger age groups approved, but probably not until 2022. Capacity is building out as well. Pfizer indicating they can manufacture at least 3 billion doses in 2022. Doctor, the problems of a couple of months ago are no longer the problems now. It's not about capacity or supply. In fact, this country is now talking about exporting some of their stockpile of vaccines. In your opinion, is the biggest issue that we have to confront right now still hesitancy? Yes, that's the biggest issue by far. We're basically hit a wall where we're seeing vaccines dip, you know, to 1 million and probably lower than 1 million. People who have gotten vaccinated, the early adopters, those are people who are really enthusiastic about the vaccine. Now we're kind of hitting that vaccine hesitancy, people on the fence, and there are people who are opposed to the vaccine. So we're kind of going at a much slower pace now. I think the Johnson & Johnson pause definitely knocked down the use of that vaccine even after the pause was lifted. So right now we're really just kind of trudging along, getting people vaccinated, but I don't think we're going to see major jumps for some time. It's going to take some time to accrue uh, a large proportion of the population vaccinated, but this 12 to 15 approval will boost that, uh, that number significantly. People who've gotten vaccinated have had the experience of the second shot, and everyone always calls each other up saying, how are you doing? Because the side effects have gotten to be pretty well known. Are the side effects, theoretically, for, say, a 12-year-old child going to be worse, given the fact that the stronger the immune system, it seems, the stronger the reactions? It's hard to make a one-to-one -one comparison that way. What we know from the, the phase three clinical trial data in that age group was that the side effects were not considered to be very severe. And, and there are people who get this vaccine and have no side effects. And it's hard to know exactly where a 12 to 15 year old would fall. But I know that's something that the CDC panel is going to look at because remember, children are not likely to have severe disease. Children are not likely to be the major spreader. So that's going to be part of the risk benefit calculation that both the FDA and the CDC do. And, and that's important to do because vaccines you know, have a risk benefit trade-off that you have to look at in each specific age group. When you talk about the risk benefit weighing that we're doing every day, there is a transition going on. When do health officials say enough high-risk individuals have been vaccinated that the COVID pandemic can be downgraded to a bad flu and we can go about our lives. 
What I think will have to happen is we're going to have to get closer to 40% of the U.S. population totally vaccinated. And I say 40% because that's where we saw precipitous declines in Israel, which is a much more highly vaccinated country, but they still haven't reached herd immunity either. But their percent positivity of tests is less than 1%. So I do think once we get more people vaccinated and you see cases plummet, uh, maybe less than 10,000 or 10,000, you're going to see just kind of a whole rethinking of how we come up with a better risk calculation, how we how we live with this virus, because it's not going to go to zero. That's a, that's a foregone conclusion. It's not going to happen. But we will get to a point where this is something that has lost the ability to cause serious disease at the right. rate that it, that it can. Dr. Adelja, the cynics and the non-science crew will say that if Pfizer's minting all this money, they should come to the rescue to the aid of India. In, my, in their wonderful press release, which, frankly, folks, I didn't do a word search on, they don't address the catastrophe we see in these other countries. Is the Pfizer vaccine too fancy for the realities of India? I don't know that it's too fancy, but it's probably going to be one of several solutions. And remember, India is a net vaccine exporter, and they exported most of their vaccine to other countries. They are maker of the AstraZeneca vaccine. They have their own homegrown vaccine. So this is a question of kind of logistics and getting them the ability to make more vaccines. They can handle the Pfizer vaccine in terms of manufacturing. The delivery situation with Pfizer, with the ultra-cold storage, that makes it more difficult. A two-dose vaccine is something that's also not optimal. So if they are able to use a single-dose vaccine like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in India, that would be probably ideal. You could take it into rural areas. So they basically have to have all hands on deck using any type of safe and effective vaccine that's available to staunch what is really uh, an out-of-control pandemic and to get them back online. Doctor, we've got to leave it there. Thanks for catching up this morning. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.